Welcome to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast and part three of our four-part series on humanistic existential psychology with Dr. Drake Spath, Dr. John Ewing, and Kathy Kocher. So awe didn't start out as this reverential respect for the complexity and grandeur of the universe. I yeah. think it started out as a type of horror yeah. that, um, and it's like a cousin of the word awful. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, but again, this kind of flies in the face of that feeling of being dumped out into the void. Except that you're missing one thing there. Awe is not just terror. They're not identical. Awe consists of terror combined with wonder. So it's the wonder piece combined with, you know, this sort of jolt of terror that lifts us out of ourselves, realizing that there's something greater. And yes, we could be horrified by that. But if it's in connection with grandeur and beauty, that's where the wonder of this kind of comes in. So it's this experience that I, I feel like it starts with our very bones and it sort of quakes and then it takes over and then it sort of like pours out of us, you know, this terror wonder combination. And it's that holy shit, like feeling like eight capital H capital S, you know, it's like, this is so much more than me. And thank goodness. <laughs> So we kind of started out with the uh, historical uh, sort of map of the universe and this ideal self uh, that we were supposed to live up to. And yeah. now we've realized, no, that ideal is uh, non-existent. It's an illusion. It's something that we cling to out of anxiety. And we end up being cast out into this void yeah. by ourselves and then can share stories build a sense of the world greater than ourselves and experience awe which is again that there is this great unknown yes rather than this defined ideal that imprisoned us that we escaped from right on well and isn't it you know kind of like the heroic journey i i like to call it that because to say the hero's journey I think Joseph Campbell has been rightly criticized for what has developed as this preference for the male gender of the hero, you know? And yet I think there are so many examples of female heroes in stories and literature and all of that. The term heroic can encompass that. And I like to talk about it as instead the stages of separation, initiation and return because there is no gender to that experience that is universal archetypal and we all go through it in so many ways these experiences of being rudely or gently separated from the familiar maybe it's because we have a longing to escape or we're feeling imprisoned or something pulls us out of the familiar circumstances because there's a sense of calling to something more and then we face the great unknown. You know, as Campbell says, we enter the unknown forest 
at a point of our own determination. And if we find a well-worn path and an easy way, we ultimately realize that's not our way. It's someone else's who was there before us. We have to be lost, confused, anguished, wondering what the heck it's all about. Sort of, we know that we're following some instinct or calling or something has forced us against our will to leave all of that comfort and seeming security of the familiar, but we're facing the terror of the unknown with courage. And when we do that with authenticity, then we see that there are forces suddenly available archetypally to help us. And then we make our way to the presence of the sacred and in the initiation have the ultimate encounter the so-called dragon and Campbell says a lot about learning to love the dragon instead of fight the dragon, realizing the dragon is really ourselves. And, you know, and that ultimately when we realize that we can integrate and come back, this is the, how we return with the boon, you know, to help the people, you know, who, from whom we've left ultimately. And that this happens over and over and over again in so many ways. More recently, I've come to the understanding that, you know, sometimes the dragon eats us too. And why is that less any less meaningful or less worthy of someone's respect? Someone who doesn't get the chance to go on grand adventures because they have to raise those children in squalid circumstances and they don't get to follow their dreams. Isn't there a kind of heroism and initiation in that as well? You know, um, this is the stuff of the existential work and therapy, you know, in terms of how we do that. So to a certain extent, Drake, we yeah. go through this journey every night in our sleep and dreams, yeah. that near death experience and yeah. uh, filing away all of the things and then having our dreams and working out priorities and a reawakening. Um, so yeah, and you're right. Uh, uh, the word hero uh, is related to gyro or to turn. So the turner, uh -huh. the one that cranked the, the wine press or uh -huh. the olive oil, uh, the turner, uh, that was the, the hero. And of course they got big strong muscles from that. Um, and could then protect uh, the people that that they were with. Um, so yeah, I think there is a. Go ahead, there, Kathy. Save me for myself. Slightly irreverent, but when the person turning the wine press, the the hero, uh, evolved into training donkeys to do that, does that now mean that donkeys are our heroes? <laughs> I would suppose so. Mm -hmm. And it, it's interesting um, how what catches our attention, yeah. uh, what is an enviable spectacle. So an enviable spectacle is in some, in some people's eyes, the definition of beauty. Yeah. And so we aspire to become that enviable spectacle ourselves um and that's uh that can turn into such an ego thing <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's kind of dancing a little bit around the, the thing that is stuck in my head with when you were talking about people that are sort of trapped by circumstance to do the things they have to do as opposed to the things that maybe their soul wants them to do, travel and create yeah. and make art and all those things. And, and that's kind of where I'm wondering, is there a point in Maslow's hierarchy, you know, safety, health, you know, all of that. Is there a point where we have the freedom to explore the humanistic part, the existential problems? Because in, in, in most of the work I do, I work with people that are pretty low on that hierarchy. They don't feel safe. Yeah. They don't have their needs met. They are yeah. not super consumed with the terror yeah. of death because the terror of living is equal to, if not more. Yeah. Well, and I think there's come to have this unfortunate association where, okay, I'm a social worker, you know, someone might say as a mental health professional, I work with clients and they seem to be at that quote bottom tier, you know, they're, they're concerned about safety, security, meeting needs for food, clothing, and shelter. And I'm doing case management and that's all I do. So I'm not doing that higher work according to Maslow and all of that. I would say what's any less existential. In fact, isn't that ultimately existential in helping people live their lives, you know, meaningfully through the daily vicissitudes and suffering, you know. So this is why I think Maslow himself didn't like the idea of the hierarchy that got imposed because he didn't really initially even intend for that. Um, you work with people wherever they're at. And then, yes, maybe some of them get to that point where, okay, I really want to work on these, this insecurity that I feel, I want to be able to make my choices and define myself the way I want to, while taking everything that I've learned in my life about generosity and compassion and social justice, I want to learn how to deliver those things to the world. That's when we can talk about working towards self-actualization and all of that. But just as I think it's okay, you know, or it has to be okay that the dragon eats people rather than them conquering the dragon. Um, it has to be okay to work with clients where they're at. And if, if the entirety of that work is spent at that level, why is that somehow less worthy? And why are, why is it somehow less admirable for those people in terms of what they're accomplishing in their lives? You know, so there's, there's an inclusivity, there's an invitation to greater inclusivity here, you know, rather than this sort of elitism that has crept into the field, because I think a series of old white guys, you know, have even upheld the humanistic psychology traditions, and somehow they're the only ones who get to enjoy the fullness of that. And, um, you know, no, no offense to Fritz Perls, you know, this, one of the sort of mainstays of Gestalt therapy, but he was quite a character. Unfortunately, my critique of him is in helping people become more organized as a whole self. He also felt that it was sufficient as long as they could express themselves and who they are with courage, that that in and of itself was fine. 
But then what about the people who don't have the privilege to get to do that in their lives? And those people far outnumber the elitists who do get to do that. <laughs> so sometimes, uh, Drake, I think of the dragon that can eat us is yeah. pride. And mm -hmm. pride is, again, that anxiety about not fulfilling the role that we had carved out in yeah. uh, the relationships that we have and not matching that ideal self. Yeah. And so after pride consumes us, then we fall yeah. back into that, that void and start over. I think yeah. uh, sometimes that what might help to protect us from pride is to care for others. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also been referred to as hubris, you know, the fact that um, I'm somehow, I deserve everything good that comes to me, you know, you know, and I deserve even more and more and more. And um, there is a humbling that is heroic, I suppose, for lack of a better description. And that, you know, even in my field, we talk a lot about cultural competence. And yet in indigenous contexts, we're starting to meet a lot of resistance to that, saying that's just another way of being colonial. You know, you want to be competent in my experience and my tradition. <laughs> you know, what about humility? You yeah, make you culture and it's fueled by genuine curiosity. That's where we really can meet relationally rather than you coming in with this idea that you can become competent whatever the heck that means you know <laughs> yes yes i've noticed a shift in from cultural competence to cultural curiosity and i, I think uh -huh. that's definitely a move in the right direction yeah because it implies you have to have a certain level of humility to be curious yeah yeah, yeah so i think you know my beloved paradigm of psychotherapy is in the midst of kind of a paradigm shift, returning to Carl Rogers' embrace of pro-social motivation and, and even relates to Alfred Adler's statement that at their best, human beings are functioning as healthy human beings when they have what he called social interest, that they are very committed to the well-being and fulfillment of each other. You know, and, and Adler worked on women's causes. He worked on blue collar workers' causes, was really ahead of his time in a lot of his ways, uh, uh, embraced existential kinds of things. Um, I think that we're returning, we're coming full circle, and it is shaking up some of the old guard who want to keep it as sort of what I tongue-in-cheekly called the old white guys club and the humanistic. You'll even notice a lot of the guys I mentioned are white guys, you know, but I really want to be clear that women's voices, you know, I, Eileen Serlin is one and Eleanor Criswell and Sashit Vallejos and some others, um, Vanessa Brown, they are really rising in terms of uplifting the power of the feminine voice and realizing that this relationality that we embrace really is part of that way of thinking. And then indigenous voices, um, indigenous psychologies, some of the, um, 
the people from those traditions are joining us at conferences and joining us in the writing of our books and joining us in our endeavors and social justice and all of that. I think that this is the way to really bring existential humanistic psychology into the fulfillment of its legacy. So are there remnants of the CBT that you did in the Air Force, the cognitive behavioral therapy? Do you? Yeah. Well, you know what I loved about doing um, group therapy from a rational emotive behavior therapy perspective, which is one of the um, CBT approaches. It's a very psychoeducational approach. So a lot of times the therapy groups felt a lot like classes. You would teach certain things and they were great for things like smoking cessation and weight management and stress management and depression management and some of those things. But all of them had at its core an embrace of the concept of taking greater responsibility for one's life. And Albert Ellis, who was the founder of that tradition, was in love with the same existential philosophers and Stoic philosophers that some of the existential, my some of my existential colleagues were. So he would often quote existential philosophy and its emphasis on responsibility taking. And if you think of this cognitive behavioral therapy approach called exposure therapy when it comes to trauma or when it comes to anxiety or phobias. And it's when the therapist helps the client either gradually or all at once in an atmosphere of safety face the thing that is causing their most fear and help them understand that they survive it. And in that survival, their bodies themselves also learn that they are okay there's a link to this existential idea of turning and facing the storms of life and facing adversity, you know? So that's where I see the kinship to cognitive behavioral approaches. My critique of cognitive behavioral therapy, however, is that it doesn't go deep enough. So for instance, we can explore someone's automatic thoughts that arise that are the irrational belief sources of why they are depressed. You know, the sort of self-message, I am a terrible, hopeless person. You know, I never do anything right. And I should be doing this. And all of this extreme alarmist thinking that gives rise, it never gets deeper to the existential core of what gives rise to that hopelessness. And this is where Viktor Frankl talks about the existential vacuum, you know, the void, facing the idea that if we search for meaning, we look inside or we look at life and there doesn't seem to be any inherent meaning except that what we create. So it's a terrible thing to look into a void, you know, and experience nothingness where you hoped to find something. And this facing of this deep, meaningless void never gets talked about in cognitive behavioral circles the way it does in existential humanistic ones. So that's where I like to do cognitive behavioral techniques as the surface manifestation of my existential humanistic foundation and core. And I'll incorporate them as I need to, but I'm gonna go for the relationship over techniques every single damn time. So Drake, um, 
maybe it's not just one void. Maybe there are maybe maybe pride is the dragon that eats us over and over again. Maybe there are other uh, beings in the void with which we contend and wrestle. How does internal family systems play into what you do? Well, it's not, I mean, all of those approaches, acceptance and commitment therapy and uh, IFS, internal family systems, they, I see them as kind of coming out of that postmodern tradition, but also incorporating elements IFS in particular really incorporates Gestalt therapy <laughs> par excellence because Gestalt approach, which is an existential humanistic tech, uh, it's that approach in, in therapy, Gestalt literally means whole, you know, the whole person and how we move out of fragmentation again into wholeness and how much we get to organize ourselves in any given moment in a situation, how much of our authentic self do we get to, to bring to bear. IFS talks about parts and gives them names, like I believe like the, the helpers, the firemen, the managers, and um, I forget the other, um, the other part, but- Exiles. The exiles, thank you. <laughs> and um, whereas in Gestalt work, we might not give those kinds of names to those parts. There's a common recognition that there are voices and parts within us that are trying to support or even achieve kind of an integration, you know, of working together and becoming a whole person. So I think that that's a structured way that a lot of people can relate to in achieving the same sort of thing that we're looking at with Gestalt therapy. But I see it as kind of coming out of this more postmodern focus, um, you know, and I think maybe I could be challenged on that, but. It's fascinating to yeah. look at that human condition that we all share. Yeah. And yes, we all, face these limitations and frustrations do you think it's possible that the existential aspect of your work addresses that separation anxiety that we all feel and that we struggle against yeah well i think you know in a way it's sort of about that almost par excellence you know you talk about the attachment piece of all of it and how some of us are fortunate in forming healthy attachments, but a lot of us have rough experiences with parents and caregivers and we emerge with more disorganized and insecure kinds of attachments. And we manifest that in many different kinds of ways as adults, those styles stay with us, but in therapy, and through life experience itself, we do have an opportunity to mend those wounds. And we bridge that sense of separation and the pain of that separation through creative endeavors and constructive endeavors in our lives and the relational ways that we do connect with others again. Um, psychotherapy doesn't have a monopoly, by the way, on being the only way to do that, no matter what you might hear. <laughs> I think that poetry, artistic expression, I think there are many, many ways, you know, storytelling and sharing of myths and 
connecting with all those things that are ancient and powerful still are ways that we can bridge that sense of isolation and separation and you know we can express the relational wholeness within us Thank you for listening to the Spirit Like Wellness podcast. Spirit Like Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. Learn more at spiritlikewellness.org.